0: Hi, welcome to podcast number 36, brought to you today from Help with Parkinson's. Our guest today is Dr. Supermanian, Movement Disorder Specialist from Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I'm your host, Warren Budfinnick. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sue. Thanks, Warren. Glad to have you. Great. Okay, our discussion today is about how difficult and frustrating diagnosing true Parkinson's is versus Parkinsonian, specifically... It's a talk about drug-induced Parkinsonism. It's referred to as DIP, drug-induced Parkinson's, versus true idiopathic Parkinson's disease, which is unknown causes. And the original drug that came out that started all this is the antipsychotic drugs, but it expanded past that. Dr. Soup, could you uh, expand that?
1: Yeah, so this is a fairly vast topic. So I'm going to try to parcel it into different portions. So the first thing I want to um, make sure people understand is that the, the manifestation of the symptoms that patients may have may look about the same. So in both conditions, regular Parkinson's disease and drug-induced Parkinsonism, or otherwise called DIP, both those conditions have a lot of similarities and lots of of crossover. So differentiating between these conditions can be very subtle and it can be very difficult. And it can be particularly difficult when uh, somebody has drug-induced Parkinsonism and on top of it they develop um, regular Parkinson's disease. So then which one came first? Whether it's the chicken came first or the egg came first, you know, or the other way around. Um, question comes, and it's pretty important because the way you treat it uh, differs. The two conditions, the way you treat it um, uh, has some dramatic differences. So let's start from uh, basics. Parkinson's disease as was diagnosed and uh, described 200 years ago, consists of um, three major symptoms. Number one being resting trauma. We have talked about this in other sessions about what resting trauma really means. And then it has the second characteristic, which is called bradykinesia, or slowness of movement. And then the third, which is actually a sign, somebody, something that a doctor or a physician or a nurse or a physical therapist has to elicit, which is called rigidity. Now, people who have all three of these symptoms, and if it follows a particular pattern, a time course in which it shows up, then they get diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, Now, of course, beyond that, they also need to be excluded from other conditions, um, meaning diseases that masquerade or pretend to be Parkinson's disease. And that's where DIP, or drug-induced Parkinsonism, comes in. So let's examine that. Now, the classic example of DIP came from the use of medicines that are frequently used in schizophrenia and frequently used in bipolar disease, people who have psychotic disorders. And they were treated with powerful agents uh, which block dopamine in the brain. And an example of this would be haloperidol or Haldol. Another example would be a medicine called Thorazine. A third example could be a medicine called Stelazine. These are all called first-generation antipsychotic agents. These medicines... Um, They were very popular in the 60s, 70s, and even into the late 80s until new generation, what we call second generation antipsychotics, came about. So when the first generation antipsychotics were used, many patients were receiving Haldol and Respiradol and Thorazine for long periods of time. Uh, We're talking about 10, 15, 20 years. And then at the end of this period of treatment, they developed symptoms which are very similar to Parkinson's. So this was called drug-induced Parkinsonism or DIP. Now, this is fairly straightforward because these medicines were used primarily by psychiatrists and they were using it primarily for people who had serious mental illness, schizophrenia, for example, or schizophrenia form disorder, or uh, rarely bipolar disorder. Now, what happened in the late 90s is that the psychiatrists recognized that many common mental illnesses, such as depression, was also associated with psychotic features. So in the late 90s, the FDA approved the use of antipsychotic medicines to be co-administered with depressive medicines. Therefore, a lot of psychiatrists started using some of these medicines fairly commonly. So people would be given small doses of antipsychotic agents, even the traditional first generation antipsychotic agents such as haloperidol or haldol. um, And stelazine was used in small doses. Then came, towards the end of 80s, early part of 90s, what we call second generation antipsychotic agents. And this, the classic example is respiridol. Another, it's called uh, Respiradol, is, is commonly prescribed uh, for patients with depression. Another one is Olanzapine. Um, and then a few more years later, almost a decade later, we got the third generation. And the third generation was supposed to be even less likely to produce Parkinson's-like symptoms or much safer. And an example of that is uh, Aripiprazole. And that's a third-generation antipsychotic agent. And then there's also a few others, like Geodon, that's um, uh, also prescribed for people with um, depression. So long story short, even though DIP, drug-induced Parkinsonism, was something that psychiatrists saw in very seriously ill, mentally ill people, nowadays, in the last 20 years or so, because antipsychotic medicines are being frequently used in diseases that are not seriously mental health issues. Uh, they could be taking medicines such as uh, olanzapine um, or Respiridol or aripiprazole, and these medicines can actually produce Parkinsonism, and you may not even know that you're taking the small doses of
0: medicine. Dr. Subh, can I just interrupt for a second? Yes. I think the, the hard part was... I know when I first started working in the early 80s mm-hmm. it, was so, it was so obvious that these people were getting tired of dyskinesia, the uh, permanent movement of the jaw and the shakiness, that it was obvious it wasn't Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. But, but when it became less side effects, like more of a harder to see side effects, that's where they started to blur the lines a little bit.
1: I, I agree, I think, um, well you bring up two important points. Um, And we can take both of them uh, into consideration. The first one is what is Parkinsonism and what is tardive dyskinesia? Two different things. And for psychiatrists and for neurologists and for the listeners, it's important to understand that these two are two different things. But these can both happen when somebody is on antipsychotic drugs. And what Warren was alluding to is some of the first-generation medicines, which we just talked about, haloperidol, for example, Haldol, or torazine or Stelazine, these medicines, they produced Parkinsonism, which was very robust. You could see it very quickly, see that they had tremors. So they were slow, they had tremors, and it was clear. And many of those patients also had another condition, which is called dyskinesia. This is involuntary movements of the face, tongue, and mouth uh, characteristic by characterized by rather abrupt movements, um, almost like you are having some facial tics kind of movement, uh, kind of things. And when you had that, it was easy to understand that, oh, yeah, this may be due to the side effect of the medicine that they're taking for their psychiatric condition. Moreover, majority of these patients they could identify that they were mentally ill because they had fairly severe illness. But what happened in the late 80s and early 90s is that psychiatrists recognized that some of the less severe mental illnesses also could benefit from antipsychotic agents. And that really created a major revolution in the field because many patients who were poorly treated for their depressive symptoms became better treated when they were given small doses of second-generation, third-generation antipsychotic agents. So there's nothing wrong in that approach. It's actually a good thing that happened for mental health. It improved the quality of mental health. However, it made it a little bit more complicated for doctors because now you have to be more astute about recognizing whether their Parkinsonism is due to real idiopathic Parkinson's disease, or is it due to um, a drug-induced side effect? And when there's a drug-induced side effect, it becomes rather hard to differentiate it from regular Parkinson's disease. Now, to add more fuel to this already controversial field, I I feel like we're already talking about things that are rather nebulous, but to make it even harder, If the person who is taking these medicines happens to be in the same age group as a person who develops Parkinson's disease, so if you are in your 60s and you have a mental health issue like depression, for example, and your doctor has been successfully treating you for depression for several years, and the doctor recognized that you had mild psychotic features, and they put you on a small dose of one of these medicines it could potentially unmask Parkinson's disease. Now, let's walk through that one more time. Let's make sure that we all understand that. Now, in previous podcasts, we have already talked about Parkinson's being a deficiency of dopamine in the brain. And many, if not all the drugs that we have for treating psychotic features block dopamine. So as anybody could possibly follow along here, the logic that if you are putting somebody on a medicine that blocks dopamine, then you may show your symptoms of Parkinson's earlier than if you were not on such a medicine. So one of the things is that uh, these medicines can unmask or bring out Parkinson's disease earlier. Now that's different from just the drug causing Parkinson's, but this is unmasking regular Parkinson's disease because you're on such a medicine. So the message I want to pass along to the listeners is that this is not a trivial matter. It's not something that um, is easy to diagnose. It requires subspecialist or sometimes super specialist input. Somebody who's experienced in movement disorders, uh, working very closely with your family doctor and with your psychiatrist will have to discern whether it's drug-induced Parkinson's or it's idiopathic Parkinson's or drug-induced Parkinson's unmasking idiopathic Parkinson's disease, all of which are possibilities, and this needs to be carefully vetted. I hope that gave you an overview. We can talk more detail about this, so I'm going to pause here and ask Warren to ask questions.
0: Yeah, so so the way I look at the uh, unmasking is it's like, like the straw that broke the camel's back. The camel was fine, and then all of a sudden one more thing, push it over. So it may be something that pushed it over for these patients 10 years before it was set to go off Yes, because of the medication.
1: Yeah, sort of. So uh, the idea is that you're already deficient. And so let's give a, a tangible example. Let's let's imagine that uh, the total amount of dopamine that a normal person at the age of 65 has is worth 100 points. And Parkinson patient already has a loss of 50 points even before they became symptomatic. So it's already reduced 50%. Now, if you're put on a dopamine blocking agent, uh, let's take an example, olanzapine or respirator, one of these drugs, you're put on it. And why were you put on it? You were put on it because you had depression and your psychiatrist or your family doctor thought you could benefit from a small dose of an antipsychotic agent because it would make your overall response to depression better. And they put you on it. Now, what happens is even that 50% reduction makes it look like it's 40% because you block another 10% of those neurons using this dopamine blocking agent. Now, the good news is it's reversible because when you give a medicine like this, if you stop the medicine, the effects of Dopamine blockade should go away. And so you should be able to reverse it and get back that 10% that you lost. And that's the good news about drug-induced Parkinsonism is in vast majority of the cases, you can unmask it. However, if you're already vulnerable for Parkinson's and because Parkinson's is a progressive disorder, um, you are going to manifest the symptoms as time goes on. So even though you stop the drug, Um, and you said, okay, well, you should be taking that antipsychotic drug because it unmasked Parkinsonism. You stopped the drug, and you got temporarily better. But guess what? After a few years, your Parkinsonism is going to show up again because, after all, those degenerating neurons in the brain are going to continue to degenerate. And even though you took the medicine off, uh, you might develop uh, more symptoms. So that's uh, a, a very tricky, very delicate um, um, question in a doctor's mind and requires very careful wedding, very careful um, analysis by your specialist doctor. So many, many such patients come to my practice for um, such very careful, detailed analysis. So I want to take a step back and tell the patients here that if they are in such a situation, when they come to a doctor's office, what to expect? One of the things that we as a clinicians would do is to take a very detailed history. So we often will ask about medicines that you took five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And sometimes uh, patients uh, ask me the question, "Doc, um, uh, are not these in my records? And the answer is much of the time is not in the records, number one. Number two, what's in the records is not always accurate as to what actually you took because sometimes a doctor might prescribe you with certain strength of medicine for a certain length of time, but you may not have actually taken it that way or you may have taken it more or taken it less or you would have been less compliant. And that's important because the total amount of medicine that you took makes a determination whether you would be vulnerable or drug-induced Parkinsonism or not. So sometimes these type of questions can be quite intrusive, can also be quite irritating, uh, because how am I supposed to remember medicine that I took 10 years ago? I can't even remember the medicine I took a, a year ago in some cases. And they say, how can I remember? But it's an important piece of information, and there's no real test to tell us you took a certain medicine a certain number of times. Um, so... This type of history-taking, where you, you really get into the nitty-gritty detail and try to rec- get records from other doctors and review them very carefully, talk to family members, you know, spouses, children, other caregivers, to really try and remember whether you took a certain medicine. Sometimes we even ask the names of medicines. Uh, it's not uh, uncommon for me to bring up these names, uh, haloperidol, rasperidol, uh, torazine, and stelazine in the setting of somebody who's coming to be uh, checked for this condition. Now, the second thing is we look for certain clues to tell us whether patients with drug-induced Parkinsonism are different from idiopathic Parkinson's disease, and let's go over some of those clues. One clue is that Parkinson's disease, when it starts, is usually always on one side, and typically and uh, the other side has no symptoms. So for example, if somebody develops tremor in the left hand, um, that tremor takes a while before it jumps from left hand to the right hand, usually three, four, five years. And if we're lucky enough to see you early in the stage of Parkinson's disease, uh, we can make a fairly good diagnosis because we can see that one side is not affected, the other side is affected, it becomes easy. However. If you didn't seek attention of the doctor for a few years, and you came to see us three, four years later, now by the time now you have symptoms on both sides of the body, then it's very difficult to tell the difference between whether you have drug-induced Parkinsonism or idiopathic Parkinson's disease. But still, usually in Parkinson's disease, the side that got affected first looks more severe. So what we call asymmetry, there is a difference in the two sides. One side is affected more than the other. Now, if you think about it, drug-induced Parkinsonism typically is more symmetric. Both sides are affected fairly equal. Why? Because the drug went to the brain and the drug went and acted on the dopamine system. So it affected both sides fairly equally. So that's one clue. Another clue that often helps the doctor in drug-induced Parkinsonism is that typically both the hand and the legs are fairly equally affected in drug-induced Parkinsonism. Now, in idiopathic Parkinson's, or what we call no-cause Parkinson's, or what commonly people call just Parkinson's disease, uh, typically the upper limbs are affected more. Uh, tremor is something that people notice more. Dexterity loss is noticed more. And gait difficulty, walking difficulty, balance difficulty, etc., usually comes much later, 5, 10 years into the disease, then you get the balance loss. Furthermore, as we have discussed in other podcasts, um, the non-motor features of Parkinson's are increasingly recognized as very important for correct diagnosis of of Parkinson's disease. So for example, smell loss, um, sleeping difficulty, REM behavioral disorder, um, anxiety, fairly severe anxiety in early stages of disease, mild depression, um, these are fairly common, and constipation, fairly common in idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Drug-induced Parkinson's doesn't always have all these things. Uh, constipation, for example, is not very common in drug-induced Parkinsonism. So is smell loss and, uh, and uh, uh, REM behavioral disorder. is not that common. Now, of course, it can still happen especially if you're unmasking Parkinson's disease, then these symptoms can be there as well. But these are clues. And oftentimes the doctor, an astute doctor, will ask these type of questions, but ask it in a different way. Tell me about your symptoms. Can you explain what you have? How do you sleep? Um, How is, what I may ask the spouse, is your spouse doing something strange in sleep? Are they talking in sleep? Are they moving in sleep? Are they doing other things in sleep that are problematic? Um, how often do you have a bowel movement? Is it uh, three times a week or twice a week? Do you have a lot of gas? Yes. You know, these are common questions that, uh, what we call non-leading questions, questions that are just generally trying to collect information without actually biasing somebody. So rather than say, hey, do you have REM behavioral disorder, which doesn't make any sense because patients are not supposed to have learned by themselves whether they have REM behavioral disorder or not. We have to get the information on what they have and then surmise it based on our uh, experience as to whether you have this or not. So to summarize, the differentiation between Parkinson's disease and drug-induced Parkinsonism is not very easy. It can be quite complicated and it requires very careful history-taking. And this history-taking can take quite some time and it can be frustrating for patients because They may not remember all the medicines that they have been on. However, it's an important piece of information, and sometimes it behooves to either bring your list of medicines or bring your pill bottles, even if it was expired pill bottles, just bring it along, um, and have it at the visit so that the doctor can examine and see whether that could have produced it. Again, I'll pause here for a second because we've covered a lot of territory. There's more to cover, but I'm going to ask Warren to... Um, come in and ask his questions.
0: Yeah, so it seems like uh, sense of smell, loss of sense of smell is the big outlier between the two that you really should check everybody with that because it's simple and harmless with those sticks that have the smell on them.
1: Yeah, you can do that or just taking the history of just asking what the sense of smell is and whether there's constipation. So what I do in my clinic is that we have a non-motor inventory. It's a bunch of questions that we ask and um, we use that as a, one of the benchmarks. Of course, it can't be used exclusively, but it's one of the benchmarks that we use. And that's a good segue to talk about other medicines that also can produce drug-induced Parkinsonism. So not everybody is taking antipsychotic drugs that develop Parkinsonism. There are many other medicines that also produce Parkinsonism. Now, what are they? One common example is a medicine called metoclopramide otherwise called Reglan. Now, this is a medicine typically given by your family doctor or your gastroenterologist for nausea or for uh, upper GI discomfort, and it could be in a variety of different ways, either throwing up or indigestion or um, reflux. All of those things can be occasionally treated with this medicine called Reglan. Now, Reglan unfortunately, also blocks dopamine. That's how it works. Now, it's used for blocking dopamine in the gut, in the stomach. However, as all medicines do, they go everywhere. They go to the brain as well. So they block dopamine in the brain as well. And unfortunately, uh, Reglan is supposed to be used short term. It's supposed to be used for three months, maybe six months. But sometimes what happens is your story and it's never taken off. You're on it for long periods of time. And I've seen people, um, especially people in nursing home, who've been on this medicine for five years. And lo and behold, they develop Parkinsonism. And then they get uh, sent to us for diagnosis. And we find out, oh, you're on Reglon. Why are you on it? Well, somebody started me many years ago, and I just continued the medicine. That's that's the usual answer that we get, that there's nobody revisiting it to stop that medicine. And there are a few other anti-nausea medicines also that can do this. Um, Again, I won't go through the names of them, but many doctors know about it. Your family doctor knows about it. Um, And that's another class of drugs, anti-nausea medicines, GI medicines can produce Parkinsonism. A third class are antidepressants. Some of the antidepressants that we just talked about and without being antipsychotic agents, Um, Examples are the SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Uh, Good examples are Prozac, Zoloft, um, and that class of drugs, those class of drugs. When they are used in very high doses, uh, and what do I mean? Not the normal small doses that we use for treating depression, but if it's used for very severe depression at very high doses, can produce um, Parkinsonism and Parkinsonism-like symptoms. Another example is uh, some seizure medicine. Uh, one common seizure medicine um, that can produce Parkinson-like symptoms is Dapacode, otherwise uh, called valproic acid. It particularly produces tremor, and the tremor that valproic acid produces can look like Parkinson's tremor, although there are many things that differentiate it from Parkinson's disease. Uh, but it can produce a coarse, heavy tremor that can be mistaken for Parkinson's disease. Now, unfortunately, valproic acid or Dapakote is also used not just for seizures, it's also used for migraine prevention. In many, many, many patients, it's used for treatment of migraine. It's also used as a mood stabilizer. People with bipolar disease often given Dapakote for treatment of bipolar disease. And there are many other seizure medicines in the same category as Dapakote that can also produce parkinsonism if you are, Uh, not careful about it. So I just touched upon some examples of medicines. Of course, the commonest one is the antipsychotic drugs, first generation antipsychotic drugs. And I gave you some names and examples. Haloperidol is one fairly notorious drug. And then we have stelazine and torazine. Luckily, these medicines are not used that often. And then second generation, olanzapine, respirodal are the second generation. Then some of the newer uh, antipsychotic agents. For example, adiproposol and geodone can also produce Parkinsonism, uh, drug-induced Parkinsonism. And then we talked about uh, GI drug, metoclopramide or Regland, which is fairly notorious to produce, especially if it's used long-term. And then some less commonly uh, seen uh, drug-induced Parkinsonism is from Dapacode and other seizure medicines, which uh, happen to be used not just for seizure, but also for migraine prevention and for mood stabilization. So this covers, you know, uh, there are many more, but I, and we don't have time to go over all of them, but uh, these are some of the common examples of medicines that can uh, produce Parkinsonism. And it's important that your doctor takes the time to um, look into your medication regimen and see if some of these may be the blame. And of course, ask you detailed clinical examination to differentiate Idiopathic Parkinson's from other conditions is also important. Now, beyond all this, um, what else will your doctor do? If they suspect that you have drug-induced Parkinsonism, there are three other things that we as doctors frequently do. One, if it's really confusing, or not really clear what it is, we might decide to do a brain scan, which is called a DAT scan, dopamine transporter scan. This is a very specialized test and requires injection of a radioactive compound. And this radioactive uh, compound is made out of iodine. It's an iodine isotope that is attached to it. And it binds to what we call dopamine transporter, DAT. Dopamine transporter is normally present in dopamine terminals in the brain. And in drug-induced Parkinsonism, these terminals are normal. They are not affected. So uh, imaging the brain using this compound will tell us whether you have idiopathic Parkinson's or drug-induced Parkinson's fairly clearly. However, if you have both together, then it doesn't differentiate Um, the condition that we talked about at the beginning, where if your Parkinson's is unmasked by drug, that condition cannot be differentiated because you'll have both changes will be there. Now, the dad scan is expensive. It's about $1,900 insurance companies are very reluctant to pay for it so oftentimes you have to fight for it it's a very safe test um, it the radioactive compound lives in your brain for very short periods of time and the imaging is very non-invasive you just get an injection and then you're getting a brain scan a ct scan and it's n- doesn't involve an mri or anything so you can you don't have to be worried about being confined to a small space and claustrophobia etc which comes with mri so it's a fairly easy test to do, safe test to do, but expensive and less available. And also uh, where it gets done and how it's interpreted also makes a big difference. So an experienced um, radiologist, uh, nuclear physicist, is required to interpret the results. So, uh, if it's getting done, it's better to get done in a bigger center where there's a lot of experience doing it and uh, people who are really well-versed in reading the scan can do a better job at it. So that's one thing we can do. Second thing we may do in, in people where we have doubt is to simply try to reduce your dose of antipsychotic or the blaming drug. If there's a drug that we think, hey, maybe it's producing Parkinsonism, we might try to reduce the dose and evaluate you after a certain period of time, like three months or six months later, and bring you back and see how you're doing. Rarely, and I want to emphasize that this is a rare thing that we do. Occasionally, we might say, okay, let's treat you for Parkinson's. We start you on a medicine called levodopa or cinnamon and give you a good course of this medicine for a month, month and a half and see whether you improve. Now, this is not frequently done for obvious reasons because uh, giving somebody levodopa for two to three months is not a benign thing, especially if you have psychiatric illness the psychiatric illness can become worse while you're on levodopa. So you have to be cautious, and it has to be done uh, with uh, utmost care and close monitoring. So we don't do it often, but sometimes we are forced to do so. And in that case, we can tell the difference because usually levodopa makes uh, Parkinson's disease uh, improve much faster as opposed to drug-induced Parkinsonism. It may not improve it as much. Um, because, again, the mechanisms differ. So these are some of the things that we do to differentiate between drug-induced Parkinsonism and Parkinson's disease. It is a very difficult, complicated matter. It's not a trivial matter. Even for experienced neurologists, this can be confusing, and it's not as straightforward as it sounds as we covered in this podcast. Again, Warren, your questions.
0: Yes, so I um, wanted to add... When you stop the medication that could be causing Parkinson's symptoms, it could take four, four to five months before you completely get rid of those side effects. It's, it's not, just, not, not just just a couple of days to a week.
1: Correct. So you can't just stop the medicine and, and expect things to reverse right away. And in fact, um, in most cases, we don't stop the drug. We reduce the drug because you were started on this medicine for a good reason by your doctor. You know, The psychiatrist started you on a small dose of Respiradol, for example, we don't want you to suffer whatever consequences you're going to suffer for stopping the drug. So we would rather reduce it a little bit to see what happens. And we usually requires a conversation with the psychiatrist or whoever, the prescribing physician, you know, whoever is giving you that medicine, we have to have a conversation. So it's a, it's a multi-specialty collegial collaborative effort to, to get to the bottom of things. So it's not trivial. It's not something you can do overnight and say, let's just stop it for today. Let's see what happens tomorrow. That's not, that doesn't work.
0: Right. It's, it's like seeing through fog. You, uh, symptoms of Parkinson's show up, but if you treat it like that, it could be drug induced Parkinson's. And if you, uh, don't treat it, it could be the masking of Parkinson's. So you, you really, you really don't know what to do. But as far as, uh, using physician assistants in offices with neurology. Could you give your opinion on that?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. And uh, increasingly, um, we are using other ancillary staff, including physician assistants and nurse practitioners in our offices. But in my practice, um, the way we do it is that we don't use them exclusively. We use them um, Um, So my assistant, uh, Kim Barbush, she has been with me for almost eight months now. And she primarily sees people who need routine follow-ups. And she helps with workup, for example. If I have a new patient we see together, she and I see the patient together. And if you have Parkinson's and you're coming for a routine follow-up, you don't have any new problems, you just want your medication refills, you want um, your yearly checkup so that the insurance company doesn't create an issue with um, uh, refilling medicines because you've never been seen, or you need some paperwork that needs to be filled out. These are the kinds of things that we collaborate and work together, and uh, these are cases where I don't necessarily have to be involved because it's fairly straightforward, and Kim has been trained to do these uh, matters uh, fairly well. But uh, if there are more complicated cases, like what we discussed in this podcast, for example, differentiating between uh, drug-induced Parkinsonism and Parkinson's disease, this requires um, considerable experience and training to, to differentiate. So in such cases, um, we work together, and she will consult me, and I usually will see the patient in, in these type, types of difficult scenarios. And for that matter, uh, early diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. You know, If you're first time being seen and we want to tell whether it's Parkinson's or not Parkinson's, Usually it requires somebody with um, years of experience to see the patient and uh, be able to tell. Yeah, this is really Parkinson's, not that. And sometimes even with experience, it requires more than one visit. You know, it may not be enough to just diagnose it in day one. You might need a- additional uh, example. I just had an example, for example, of, uh, just the other day. We had a patient who their primary care doctor and their local neurologist had both suspected Parkinson's disease. And um, I got a chance to see this patient. And it turned out that the symptoms of this patient had gone from one side of the body to the other side of the body in fairly short period of time, less than two years. And by the time I'd seen the patient, the patient was already in stage two disease, bilateral disease. So this is like, mm, that's too fast. Why did that happen? It seemed like it didn't take the normal course of you know, waiting for a year. And this patient was relatively young. Uh, in the early 60s, you know, 61, if I remember right. Uh, so that was a little bit of a surprise. And we said, okay, well, we're not ready to make that diagnosis of Parkinson's disease yet. So we ordered a DAT scan. We also said we will um, see this patient again within a few months and we reevaluate to see what they saw. So sometimes it requires, um, even for an experienced neurologist, seeing the patient more than once and doing additional tests. Uh, So it's not straightforward. It's not easy. So physician assistants are good, and they are great help as team members. But usually uh, for making a very proper diagnoses and differentiate between uh, complicated issues, we usually work in collaboration. We don't do it in in singularity. So we actually do it together. And that's how um, I use uh, my assistant, uh, physician assistant, Kim, uh, in my practice. Um, and I think many neurologists uh, utilize the team approach, working together and working collegially uh, to uh, get to the bottom. So this way uh, there is some reduction in workload. And it actually it has benefited me in many other ways. Like if I don't have to spend time seeing routine follow-up patients, this has opened up chance for me to see new patients. Otherwise I had a huge backlog. And now that uh, there is a little bit of decompression, I'm able to see new patients uh, sooner than having to wait, make them wait um, very long periods of time. So it's actually helped out. And I think that's philosophically, I think that's a good way of going going forward. Yeah, sounds that, good. That, that answers the question. Yes,
0: yes. So you utilize them as a tool, not not to take over patients completely. Correct. Exactly. Okay. I had a question. What do you think about the theory that uh, aging of the population and we all know that it's, there's more Parkinson's patients but what about the idea that it's DIP? As the patient ages and population ages there are more medications that would cause par- Parkinsonisms. you think that that could be from the DIP instead of regular Parkinson's?
1: That's a great question I don't think we have good um, data on it um, there is a Uh, effort by the CDC, Center for Disease Control, as well as the NIH, and also uh, the administrators for Medicare and Medicaid to collect this type of information. Uh, There is only a couple of states that have mandated the reporting of uh, Parkinson's disease as a reportable disease. So California was the first state to do it. So California has a database of Parkinson's disease and um, they are working with the Kaiser Foundation to see whether there is a correlation between the total use of antipsychotic drugs in the state and see how closely it correlates with the uh, amount of Parkinson's disease that's being reported in the state. It's a huge undertaking and California has a huge population of almost 50 million people so uh, they do have the ability to tease this out And hopefully we'll have data about it. But it's an interesting thought that, you know, as people age and uh, we live longer, we do have comorbid psychiatric illnesses that are increasing. Um, We are in an increasingly stressful world where some of these psychiatric illnesses become more manifest earlier and earlier, not because of the stress. They just have a biological disorder, but it's manifest earlier because the stress makes it more obvious and then if you're treated for it correctly, which is, is also good, yeah, we, I'm glad that we have these medicines and we're able to treat these people, then um, there is always a small chance that one of the side effects of it is that you will produce some drug-induced Parkinsonism. But I don't think it's a bad problem. I think it's a good problem because we have wonderful new treatments, which we didn't have before. And therefore, I don't think there's any reason to blame these drugs to say, well, this is all drug-induced Parkinsonism. I don't think so. It's just people are living longer, and if you live and survive, the, uh, survive in this world longer, you're more vulnerable for illnesses. And because Parkinson's is an age-related disorder, yes, we're going to see more of it. So I personally think it's not a um, iatrogenic problem, a problem induced by medicines, uh, but it's something that we need to be aware of and we have to look for it. So.
0: Right, and that's the reason why everybody's looking for the biomarkers. Right. So you, so you can... Could- no, right off with the blood test or a breathing test. Right, exactly.
1: Or MRI or whatever. Right. Something, something that will tell us whether you really have Parkinson's or whether it's drug-induced Parkinsonism. And and luckily, as I already mentioned, we already have DAX scan and it's already approved an insurance base for it. And as we utilize these types of tools more, it will become cheaper. It be, And also, there's going to be competition. There are going to be other people who discover new types of, biomarkers that will challenge the DAT scan. For example, we are looking at um, ultrasound, and ultrasound is very cheap, and it's also very, very uh, easy to use. It can be done bedside, and uh, it can be done repeatedly without having to have a scanner and iodine isotope and everything. So it's quite possible that we will have a very simple, uh, straightforward bedside test that will tell the difference between these two conditions, and it will make it easier for People to understand what what they are,
0: right? Okay, and I just have one last question. Now it's we've been on for a while. How how important is the lack of smell as far as your diagnosing information? Is that is that very important, or is that just one of the small pieces that you look at?
1: Well, I think we uh, it's actually uh, very non specific because uh, loss of smell can be there in many diseases. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, for example, uh, the common neurodegenerative disorder also has loss of smell. Parkinson's also has loss of smell. All the Parkinson's plus syndromes also have loss of smell. However, as we discussed earlier, drug-induced Parkinsonism typically does not have loss of smell uh, mm-hmm. because they have other neuropsychiatric disorders, and usually they have excess dopamine. For example, schizophrenia has more dopamine than, than what you need, and bipolar disease, disease also has excess dopamine, and they don't have dopamine deficiency syndrome per se. But then when you're given the drug, the drug causes them to be dopamine deficient. So um, loss of smell can be a one of the clues. But of course, you can't use it exclusively. You have to use it in the setting of all the other things. It's one piece. I can't use just that piece. But it's an important thing to ask. Mm-hmm. It's an important thing to follow through. And rarely do we actually go through the full test. But we can do the test. We can do the full smell battery and we can actually uh, check for the smell and see what's lost. But it it is helpful. I wouldn't say it's not useful.
0: Right. Okay. You have anything else you'd like to add to this uh, podcast?
1: No, No, I think uh, we covered it all and uh, maybe we'll do another show on some of these other things that we brought up, like the smell loss or whatever we can do. that.
0: Great. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming.
1: Yeah.